I'm Evan Smith. Welcome to the Texas Tribune's Trib Live podcast. This podcast series features discussions with some of the state's most influential elected officials and policymakers, all recorded in front of a live audience. The Tribune hosts more than 50 free Trib Live events each year around the state, plus our big annual Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. To learn more about our Trib Live events or the Texas Tribune, visit us at texastribune.org. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas Coalition of Dental Support Organizations, Texas A&M University, and 83rd Legislative Session sponsor MyPlates.com. Please join me in welcoming Baylor President Ken Starr. Thank you, Evan. <coughs> Mr. Thank President, you thank you again for thank being you. here. Thank you. Right over there. Sure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Very nice to have you here finally, sir. <laughs> Good to be here. Appreciate you. you making the time and taking the trouble. It's always busy this time of year to be here. So thank you very My much. My pleasure. Thanks. I thought we might begin by talking about West and the memorial service last Thursday. You know, Baylor has the distinction of being at the center of its community, and its community is at the center of Texas. And it seemed to me that never was Baylor at the center of the center more than it was last week for that memorial service. Can you say a word or two about that? You hosted the President, Mrs. Obama, but also really the nation by extension in mourning those days. Well, we were very honored uh, to be the, the site uh, of it, and it really was the culmination, even though the concern and outpouring continues for West. <clears throat> On the night of the tragedy, our students rushed into action, faculty rushed into action. We had nursing students who were there as first uh, responders. Uh, we have in the student body volunteer firemen, uh, firefighters. Uh, and so this is really Baylor uh, at its best yep. uh, in responding to this tragedy. In fact, President Obama noted that Baylor students stood in line to give blood on the day after for five hours, literally a five-hour wait. There, yeah. When Carter Blood Center opened, the line was remarkable, and the majority of people in that line were, were Baylor University students. So we were very pleased, uh, Evan, to be able to hold this very uh, somber ceremony and it went, it was so beautiful. The president was marvelous, uh, the nation heard him, yep. uh, the governor was, was very effective, so it was, it was a great, and it was a unifying experience at a time of partisanship. Right. It's great to, uh, when we do have a tragedy, to remember we are uh, one people who are united right. by a common cause. So and Baylor I, was very honored. And I would say, of course, you'd do anything to have not had to have that memorial service, but you know, Absolutely. Ba Baylor, Baylor has been, and you have worked hard over these years, as president to be sure that Baylor is a public square, as most universities wish to be, the place where the community comes together to talk about big issues, to gather at moments, good and bad. That, that's been a priority of yours, I know, in the time you've it been here. It has. Uh, we, we have, and John Barry, my colleague from Baylor is here, has been very instrumental in helping uh, organize a series of conversations we call, <clears throat> pardon me, on topic. Yeah. We just had Senator George Mitchell, yep. who was marvelous to talk about the, the issues in the Middle East uh, yep. and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's, a university should be a place where there are serious conversations Good. with a wide variety of perspectives. Good. Well, high aspirations, I want to I go there. So when we talk about higher ed, we always almost talk about three things, access, affordability, and excellence. Uh, I want to start with the latter of those, the last, uh, excellence, and, and ask you about uh, academic excellence at Baylor and, and what you have done to improve uh, uh, excellence in the time that you've been president. You know, you're in competition with a lot of universities, private and public, to try to attract <laughs> the best kids from inside Texas and out. Um, I know that your graduation rate in four years is about 54%. That puts you uh, close to where A&M and UT are, and they're at the very top of the publics. You know, right. we can always make these things better, but that's where you are, 70% over five years. And when you go uh, after the best students from Texas, when you approach their families, you are swimming in the same water as Rice and Trinity, SMU, Southwestern, the, the elite private. So what is the case that you make to those families or to those kids? Why Baylor as opposed to, those? I know it's not the Baptist part of Baylor, which is so important to it. I know that the self-identified Baptists at Baylor only represent 30% of the student body. So it's not just that as a way to connect them to campus. What is the case you're making for why Baylor? It is a comprehensive research university, and yet it has the feel of a small liberal arts college. Yeah. 
that we know one another, we care for one another. Uh, and our Christian commitment is a defining characteristic of, of who we are. The culture of that. The of, culture of the is, uh, is, is, is just astonishing in creating this genuine caring community where right. every student is treated as a person of eternal value right. with complete dignity. And I think it's one of the reasons, frankly, uh, Evan, that we have such a strong minority population. Right. Everyone feels very welcome and comfortable there. We have one-third of our entering students are minority, so we're, we're a place that welcomes everyone with excellence and so we're right. ranked by uh, the Carnegie uh, Foundation as, uh, as a high research uh, university. Yeah. Our aspiration is move on up. Yeah. Historically we've been more of a teaching university but really for the last uh, 15 years uh, there's always been research at Baylor, right. but it's the degree of research activity which presents great opportunities for our undergrads. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is lost in the conversation. The, 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 they're, they're the, by extension, they're the beneficiaries of all this work. They are working alongside their, not only their professors, but doctoral candidates and postdocs doing very important things, whether it's cancer research or whatever the subject right. may be. T tell me though, I want to ask you to be specific if you can. Every president of every university talks about excellence. Every institution wants to promote academic excellence as a calling card for potential students and for donors as well. But tell me specifically, what have you done in these two and a half, almost three years to put excellence academically uh, you know, at, at the head of the line? Well, we have maintained something that's very important, but I didn't invent it. Yeah. So I am building on what others who have come right. before me have done. But the American Council of Trustees and Alumni rank Baylor as one of the 21 universities in the country who have a rigorous curriculum. Yeah. One of the issues for higher education is what are the outcomes and yeah. what are the students actually studying? Right. And so there are 21 out of over 1,000 universities who are given a big fat A for the rigor of their curriculum. So the quality of the education and then the relationship with the faculty at a time when we're talking about online education and so forth, which yeah. is a very important topic, at Baylor, we want a residential experience that is a very high quality experience, a high impact experience that's transformational for that student. So we have a relatively low student-faculty ratio. We About emphasize 15, 15, to 15 to 1. 15 yeah. to 1. And we, we would like to lower that. But yeah. Obviously, there, there's a trade-off in terms of, of cost and access yeah. that, that, that you'll come to momentarily. Right. We are emphasizing strongly, and we have throughout, and I just like to say it's 21st century Baylor. Throughout the 21st century, I've been privileged to be there for three of these years, yeah. the emphasis has been on residential life to encourage students all four years or five years to live on campus and to really engage in the fullness of the community that, that is Baylor. And that's, that's that's a, a very attractive yeah. calling card, and parents are attracted to that. And increasingly, uh, what we're finding is literally around the world, people are coming, all 50 states, 83, 87 foreign countries, yeah. in the undergraduate student body. Now, you mentioned outcomes. There's a lot of discussion in the legislature this session, as there has been for the last couple of sessions, about outcomes on the public university side. That conversation is really about funding based on outcomes as opposed to other things. Obviously, you know. You don't have the same considerations that the publics do, but of course you want these kids to come in, get a great education, and then move on. And as I mentioned, 54% get out in four years, 70% in five years, I think it's a little bit higher in, in six years. What are you doing on the private side, similar to the conversation on the public side, to help kids understand that we don't want you here forever. We want to get you in, get you educated, and get you into the workforce or whatever you're going to do next. We're beginning at day one. In yeah. fact, we begin even before day one, during summer orientation, also during line camp, to say, we can help you through counseling to have this great Baylor experience, but to be complete in four years. Yeah. What's happening is, and here's a huge countervailing consideration, that yeah. is students want to double major, and then they want to pursue other kinds of opportunities, right. internships and so forth, which is all, always very, very good. Yeah. And so that what used to be pretty common, a four-year graduation four out, rate, right. is yeah. now just, it's, it's, it's difficult for students to achieve and to do everything that they want well, to as do. You mentioned, we do, yeah. we yeah. do encourage that, right. because that is also, by the way, Evan, just very quickly, yeah where debt, student debt, which is weighs on my mind, this keeps right. me awake at night. And this is now rising in this country to be greater than credit card debt, right, is a problem. That's right, I mean. but I think that's an apple and an orange because this is a lifetime kind of 
okay. opportunity that one is getting as opposed to, hey, here's my, uh, my monthly buy credit, a washing machine credit charge. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But, but, so the, but you mentioned the 21st century Baylor. The reality is the 21st century student is just a different student. The profile of a 21st century student, many work, some don't come back to, some don't come to school right away out of high school, some take a gap year or longer. It may be that the nature of students is also a little bit different, and so the expectations for the university of those students may need to be different. Nationwide, that has become very true, yeah. that uh, you know, the five years, the six years is the norm because of these different experiences right. that, uh, that students choose to have during the course of an undergraduate education. So it's very different than when we were in college. Right. The, uh, the affordability question, let's get to that. So Baylor tuition is roughly plus or minus $16,000 per semester. It puts you completely in the same category as the Rice SMU. Southwestern, all those guys. If you annualize it, you look at the privates, the elite privates that I've mentioned versus like A&M and UT, which I know are big uh, competitive set schools for you. Kids often come to Baylor, they're also looking at UT and A&M. It's roughly three to three and a half times the cost of going to a UT or an A&M. Not the same product necessarily, but it's a little bit more expensive. I know that's the rack rate. You know, nobody really pays the rack rate in a hotel, <laughs> and very few people pay the rack rate at a university. They're going to end up paying somewhere less than that. But nonetheless, that's a, a, a hurdle for some people to get over. What, if, what are you doing to keep the cost of a Baylor education within reach for so many of these kids who want to who want to? Well, I want to pick up on one thing: the, yeah. the rack rate, and and that is our discount rate. Yeah. This off the sticker price is yeah. a little over forty percent. Right. And that's in the norm. On average. And so on, on, on average. Yeah. And so what we are doing is we're coming alongside families and saying, okay, here is the sticker price, but let's see, we're going to do everything that we can to make this work. Right. So that's a university expense. That is university funded scholarships. Right. Now what else we're doing is raising as much money as we possibly can day yeah. in and day out for what we've called the scholarship initiative. This was something that you put put into play on day one. Day one and you actually just completed. And we just we just completed it. We haven't completed fundraising. We have completed this particular right. initiative. And that's a 100, 100 million, million dollar dollars. initiative and that goes to all for scholarships. All for scholarships. Merit merit based Merit, Need based? But, uh, it, no, no, it is just whatever the needs are yeah. for scholarships. Right. And so it's, it's a flexible program, but we also have part of the bucket is for athletic scholarships. So yeah. someone would say, you know, I love the classics department, however, I love the basketball team a little bit more, or right. vice versa. Right. So obviously it's donor-driven and donor-crafted. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a missions bucket because so many of our students feel called to go on mission trips during the summers or during the spring break. Right. You know, when people are at the beach, a lot of Baylor students are doing it. It's not unique to Baylor, but it's just part of our DNA. Are out really helping the needy somewhere in the world or close to home. So that. Uh, can be quite costly. How do you get to Kenya? We have a lot of connections in East Africa. Yeah. So the missions bucket has been an important thing. Ties back to well. the culture, again, another way in which it ties back to that Baylor, right. Baylor culture. Um, you mentioned a third of the student population entering this year is, is a non-Anglo minority yes. population. Uh, a good way to ask you about access and, and maybe more broadly about demographics. We're yep. in a state that population is changing <clears throat> rapidly. Now we're minority majority. We're soon to be Hispanic majority. You're uh, entering class in the fall is, I believe, about 12% Hispanic, uh, Hispanic uh, a little bit lower than where it is at A&M and UT, but in fact you have a higher African-American population than either A&M or UT. Uh, this question of how to uh, attract and retain the b best sort of Baylor-appropriate non-Anglo students is going to be more and more a focus, I suspect, of the university's attention over time. As the population changes, necessarily the Baylor population Will change. What are you doing on that front? How, how are you getting uh, the best Hispanic and African American and Asian students to look at Baylor seriously? We're into the schools. Obviously, we provide lots of information, but we're in the yeah. schools. But we also have great connections with pastors. There's some 1,200 um, Hispanic uh, Baptist churches yep. uh, in, in Texas. Yep. And so we have connections with uh, Hispanic pastors. Uh, and it's not just Baptist pastors. Yep. Uh, we have a very large Roman Catholic uh, population. Uh, at, at Baylor. It's our second, uh, second largest. Yeah. So that is huge. We also host the largest gathering of Hispanic youth uh, in uh, Evangelical Life, the Baptist yeah. General Convention of Texas. 8,000 Hispanic high school students come to Baylor every single year over Easter weekend for a time of worship and fellowship and yep. so forth. So we have very deep ties into the Hispanic community and have historically had great ties into the African American community. Is the product that you produce at Baylor, <clears throat> given an increasingly non-Anglo population, 
necessarily a different product? Do you have to tailor the educational experience? You know, we have a lot of discussions in public education right now about the, the growing Hispanic population and whether public ed's approach to the job that it does will need to change over time as the percentage of kids who are, say, five and under really races up from, I think right now there are 44 or 45% of the five and unders in the state are Latino. It'll be 70% by 2040. And so public ed is rethinking how it does both budgeting and policy. Is higher ed and will Baylor specifically have to rethink as the population changes what the product looks like? Well, I, I don't think so, and I may be wrong about that, but we do think that there is, in fact, a very important dimension of education, which yeah. is this transformational experience in community, and it's in community together. So we want all these red and yellow, black and white, we want everyone to be in community together and studying right next to one another, whatever the subject is. And yeah. so I loved it when Perry Jones III, who's now in the NBA, was uh, interviewed by the New York Times. Okay, what, what's your coursework like? What's your hardest course? Chemistry. Yeah. Well, that's not an African-American course. Right. Okay, what's your favorite scripture? Say Christian scriptures. Everybody right. is there taking it. What's your least favorite uh, course? Theater. I'm finding it difficult to understand Chinese theater. Yeah. I mean, this is a terrific bringing together in community of everyone, whatever their background is. Now, we have 286 student organizations on campus. Yep. And so people can pour their sense of identity and cultural and, and ethnic and racial background into their extracurricular uh, work. And what we also find, we have a lot of churches in Waco, is that people will find, our students will find a church community that is very agreeable to them that is meeting their spiritual needs. Right. And so I think holistically that uh, all of our students are finding their place uh, as a member of a caring community. Because again, the diversity of the religious backgrounds on campus, I think uh, th that struck me, I'll tell you. As I think about Baylor, the word that comes to mind is Baptist. Yeah. And well, the idea that only 30% of the enrolled students are self-identified Baptists, maybe it shouldn't have struck me, but it, it, but it, did, it did strike me that that didn't seem as high as I would have expected. Well, we live in a post-denominational world, but we're very yeah. proud of our Baptist uh, heritage, and that is the preponderance uh, of the student body, and there are a lot of wonderful Baptist churches uh, uh, in and around right. uh, uh, campus. But you're right, there are a wide variety of uh, religious uh, faith walks who are represented in the student body. But we have a very vibrant chaplaincy, yeah. uh, and, and I must say, when I think of uh, the, the new, we just lost uh, our Catholic chaplain to studies uh, in the Vatican, but the new Catholic chaplain and it's wonderful. Boy, if you're going to get poached, you may as well get poached by the Vatican, I mean, honestly. <laughs> well, it's and, not like I lost him to Stephen F. Austin. You know. <laughs> and, and, and Father Anthony hails from Nigeria, and he lived right. in West. He, it was Father Anthony, our Catholic chaplain, now at the Vatican, who introduced me to West. Oh, wow. Yeah, because he, he actually lived in West. Yeah. But it's a really, it's a closely knit community, which makes it, you know, it's large, and yet it has that small feel right. with this beautiful campus. Yeah. And so I'll tell you this, if people come to our campus, they love the people, and they love the campus, and then they see the excellence of the teaching, which is very important. Here's something that yep. is non-negotiable at Baylor. If you want tenure at Baylor, you've got to be a great teacher. Now you've got to have some other things. Right. How, is, how is that different, uh, President, from any other school? Wouldn't, 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 make... wouldn't any president be able to say the same thing? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Ask them. But I will right. tell you this. Uh, Baylor is very proud that, that and, and great teaching, in our yeah. view, means mentoring. Yeah. You've got to come alongside those students in a really meaningful and powerful way and show that, that you're really pouring yourself into right. the lives of the students. Okay, I've waited 15 minutes. Let's talk about Robert Griffin. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 really had, I really had to restrain myself. Uh, what are you doing on that campus in the athletic department? I mean, you, you, you all have just turned the world upside down in the last few years athletically. I think for, for the people who, in this audience and elsewhere, who were big Baylor fans, it may not have come as such a surprise. But to the sort of gen pop, I think, People are going, boy, Baylor is now in every athletic conversation in college sports. What, what's going on, or is this just basically everything converging to a moment? I think it's more the latter. Yeah. Uh, uh, Baylor has a great athletic tradition. We right. have uh, a veteran of the 1952 Orange Bowl right here. We've had great, great athletic teams over the years. We have been in the national championship for basketball. Uh, in, in past uh, right. past seasons. So uh, obviously our track program is world uh, renowned. Uh, but I think Robert helped crystallize attention in Brittany. 
others who have been so effective over these recent, uh, Ro recent years. You could hardly have a better ambassador for Baylor Athletics than, he, Robert, than Robert Griffin, right? He loves Baylor. Right. Uh, we, we love him. He's just a, a fantastic student. He is the student athlete. Right. Yesterday, when it was senior day for our uh, baseball team, yeah. they swept the Longhorns. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> but <clears throat> but I'm, I'm there. I'm well, there we, we have security to escort <laughs> you from the building. I'm there shaking hands uh, before the game began, right. and here are the families and so forth. And they're from all over the country. Most of them are from Texas. Yeah. But here's a guy with a 3.6 in mechanical engineering and so forth. Right. So we're very, we very much emphasize you're a student athlete. Yeah. 3.2 cumulative GPA across the 19 sports. Or, and, and, and there's, I presume, as there are at other universities, fairly stringent requirements if you're not making these kinds of grades, you're out. Yeah, uh, off you go. Right. And, and so in many of the debates about the future of college athletics, uh, mine is one voice, but it's by no means alone. I think college presidents feel very strongly these are students who then bring their great talents uh, to bear. And Robert just exemplifies that. Yeah. 3.68 GPA, right. graduated in three years, was working on his master's degree, wants to go to law school, and, uh, and we hope and plan for him to come to Baylor. Come back to Baylor, yeah, when, yeah. when the time comes. You <laughs> mentioned Brittany Griner as well. She also, in the same way that Robert Griffin has been a great ambassador for Wonderful. Baylor on the football side, for, drafted first in the WNBA. You know, obviously, her options from a professional sports standpoint, unfortunately, as a woman, are limited to a greater degree than his are, but nonetheless is going to go out there and carry the Baylor flag as, as, as much as she possibly Absolutely. can. Absolutely. We love Brittany, and she's yeah. going to do a great job. On the Brittany subject, I have to ask you, President, about uh, <clears throat> the news from last week. Uh, Brittany Griner, as you I'm sure read in, on ESPN or in Sports Illustrated, announced uh, uh, on the day that she was drafted that she's gay. Uh, I understand that the Baylor culture is very traditional. There are traditional values baked into that culture. And for a lot of people, it is those traditional values that attract them to Baylor. And the policies of the university really pivot off of those values. If I read the student policies and procedures correctly, I don't know that I'd say you are prohibited from being openly gay or lesbian on the Baylor campus. It, it reads to me a little bit more like don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> the old don't ask, don't tell. Uh, I wondered if Brittany Griner had announced a year ago that she was gay, as opposed to waiting until the end of her senior year, if she would not have been welcomed back on campus as a result of the policies in place, which let me stipulate, Baylor is perfectly entitled to have. It's not a question of Baylor being in violation of any rule. I mean, you're, it's a private university. People can choose to come or not. But I'm wondering if Brittany Griner's situation now makes you think at all about this intersection between traditional values and a hidebound culture on the one hand and the inevitable intersection of the modern world. Well, we encourage one another. <clears throat> uh, happily, uh, in, in our worldview, we all know that we goof up or we make mistakes, or we make choices. Yeah. And, uh, and, and part of our loving one another is we accept one another. Yeah. We can encourage one another. We can say, here is something I'd love for you to think about, and so forth. But we love Brittany, and we'll always love Brittany. We'll love her uh, unconditionally. And yeah. now, of course, she would be welcomed. So, so the policy in place at Baylor does not preclude someone from being openly gay on campus. That, that, your, your reading of the yeah. policy is not in any way restrictive so that a Brittany Griner situation at an earlier point in one's college career would be problematic for the university. Uh, is it problematic? It, it's, it's something that we would want to be as, as loving and caring about as we could, but th that person would be welcome at Baylor University. That person would be welcome. Okay, let me ask about you. So you end up in this job uh, in 2010, having been dean at Pepperdine. You had a, a long career that was quite celebrated and quite public. People knew you as that guy. Now they have to know you as this guy. People perceive you as having been part of the so-called partisan wars of a different political era. You may take issue with that. But, but as president of Baylor, you are totally out of that. You have to be president of not just the Baylor that Kelly Hancock and Don Willett went to. You have to be president of the Baylor that Kirk Watson went to. You have to be president of all of Baylor. So can you talk to me about how hard it has been, or maybe not, to transition from the guy you were before 
to the person you are now with the job you have now and the outlook and orientation that you have to have now. Well, I was always drawn to the law, uh, and even though one assignment in particular uh, looked as if uh, I was doing something other than law It's going to dog you forever, right? <laughs> it's going to be the first line in the obituary. Yeah. You afraid. know, there, there, there's a book in Washington called The Plum Book about the good jobs, yeah. but there's also a book in Washington called The Prune Book. This was at the top of the prune book. A prune. This is a real prune. As jobs go, right. Yeah. But, uh, no, I've never run for office. Uh, obviously, I do have uh, views about uh, policies and so forth. I've been affiliated with a particular party over, over my life. I have First Amendment rights. Right. But I've never run for office. Uh, I've never run a campaign. Yep. Uh, I've been drawn to the law. And I've been a law officer, both a judicial officer and then uh, over on the executive branch uh, side mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and I've always had a foot in higher education. So there's actually a continuity in what I've been doing. I taught at NYU, yeah. uh, taught at uh, George Mason and so forth. I've always had uh, at least a foot, at least a big toe in higher education, really from day one. Yeah. Once I graduated, I, I've even uh, taught at a junior college one, uh, one semester. Uh, so I love higher education. I've always been committed to higher education. So there's a real continuity there. Yeah, but but you didn't feel like there was any need to transition to how you think about running a university versus the, oh. the work that you did before. Oh my goodness! And how yes. did that work before prepare you necessarily for the work that you're doing? I think lawyers are well prepared, if I may say so, yeah. to take on this kind of role because above all, you're a problem solver. Right. You're to what are the facts? You analyze the facts. Uh, and then you uh, do your best to solve the particular problem. And that's a skill set. Communication skills uh, are obviously very important that lawyers are well trained for. Yeah. You, you have, I mentioned in the introduction, argued 36 cases. I believe that's the right number right. before the U.S. Supreme Court. You're 25 as Solicitor General of the United States. As you now uh, look at the Supreme Court today, uh, you know, Supreme Court is maybe as well known, the individuals on the court maybe are as well known as almost celebrities in their own right as at any time previously. You have a lot more people who know who Scalia and Alito and Roberts and Kagan and Sotomayor are. The justices themselves seem to be stepping out more as individuals, as individual brands almost, distinct from the from the court brand. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? From your, I as think a long-time court watcher, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good thing. Uh, it, first of all, I believe that the American people need to know much more about the Supreme Court and about our government system generally. Yeah. Baylor, by the way, has been involved with Justice O'Connor in a marvelous program called iCivics that right. we're using educational in the Waco program, yeah. educational program to, to address this issue not in Texas happily, but in many parts of the country, essentially a collapse yeah. of civic education. And so Justice O'Connor, a native Texan, has taken uh, Baylor and uses the our program working with the public school system. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, back to the Supreme Court. I think it's good for the justices to be out. I think it's good for us to read the stories of Sonia Sotomayor. She was here in Austin right. doing a book signing and so forth, doing a lecture. Uh, for Clarence Thomas to write, my grandfather's son. I mean, people now come to understand them as persons yeah. in a really powerful way. And these are great American stories. Uh, then for uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer to take their show on the road about their competing interpretive approaches to the Constitution, I think this is just good for the country. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's, I guess, hard to imagine that we now have a society in which Supreme Court justices go on the Daily Show as a matter of course. <laughs> but I do wish, uh, and I've, I've That may be a little bit too much celebrity, possibly. That may be a little bit too much, but I do think uh, the next great reform, which it, it will be a while in coming, is to actually televise the proceedings. Those are, you are such... You're for it. I've been for it yeah. since I was served as Solicitor General. Yeah. It is so important for the American people to see that when issues such as the Affordable Care Act, the meaning of the First Amendment, the religion clauses and so forth are being argued, I think the American people, if they see the argument itself as opposed to just what the justices say is let them read the opinion. They're yeah. not going to read the opinion. Look at the Affordable Care Act. It's several hundred pages even long. If they read the, even if they read the opinion, they may not actually fully understand the opinion. Some, some of the, news, some of the news organizations who read the opinion didn't understand <laughs> the opinion. You know, it's Justice Black, Hugo Black, who said that Supreme Court opinions should be written so that they could be read, his words, in the barbershop or the beauty shop right. and understood by the people. And he wrote that way. He right. wrote for the people. He was a United States senator. But these wonderful justices, all of them uh, very able, 
are nonetheless, they're mandarins. They are students of the law and they speak in that language. But we can understand the language of the law when we watch uh, the oral argument. Yeah. So in the couple of minutes we have left, let me ask you what happens now. So you're, you've been president, I say, going on three years at, at Baylor. Uh, you theoretically have a long-term vision for this university. What's, what's the next big scholarship initiative, at least this phase of it, is, is complete? What, what, what is the next big thing that you're going to put out there as president? What would you like to see us talking about if you're back here five years from now? Well, we want to complete some of the capital projects. Yep. Uh, you know, our stadium is A lot, lot of building underway. projects on campus, right? A lot of it. We have almost a half a million, uh, a half a billion dollars in building either going on or contemplating. Uh, on the residential life, we have a new uh, wonderful East Village, 700 students, 700 beds, wonderful dining facility that comes online in August, uh, the new stadium, August of 2014. And then the Board of Regents just announced the uh, public phase of a building campaign for our new building and innovation campus. We definitely need that space. So we, we have some space issues we need to complete what we call the Victory with Integrity campaign for our athletic uh, complex. Uh, we just completed an indoor tennis facility, which is very good. We have a very strong tennis program, as yeah. you know. Uh, but then we want to continue to build on the academic uh, side, bringing in the kinds of professors drawn to Baylor, like Marlon Scully, winner of the Loeb Prize in Physics, John Wood, previously at Yale in Chemistry. These are the kinds of high-impact academics that we want to bring in, so that's endowed chairs, uh, more endowed scholarships, that is going to be just sort of eternal vigilance, constant working to raise money for uh, the, the cost, the access set of issues that we talked about earlier. Got it. All right, Mr. Starr, thank you very much for being here. Let's give the President a hand. Thank you very much for your thank you. time, sir. Thank Appreciate you. Let me, um, let me suggest that you all uh, pepper the President politely with questions now for the balance of our time, things we didn't talk about. Uh, Doc's got a question. What do you think it's about? Uh, yes, President Dar, I appreciate your comments there. I wonder if you might just uh, visit for a moment on the BRICS Center uh, and what, uh, what uh, impact that's going to have uh, not only in Central Texas but in, on the state in general. Thank you. Uh, and Doc, thank you for your representation of, uh, of our community. We appreciate all that you do here, here in Austin. Uh, the Baylor Research and Innovation Collaborative is a 300,000 square foot gathering together of great researchers. I mentioned two yep. of them. Marlon Scully, a great world-renowned physicist. John Wood. John Wood, world-renowned chemist and so forth, coming together to do research with undergraduates and doctoral programs and, and, and the like, and to encourage and promote human flourishing. So the kinds of innovations that we want to see coming out of university uh, research. We also are bringing businesses in. So we've had communication with over 100 businesses that are interested in the possibility of partnering uh, with us at the BRIC. And then we're also having technical training in collaboration with TSTC, Texas State Technical College, and working with Elton Stuckley, who's one of your friends and admirers, who does such a great job at TSTC at their flagship campus, and working together to make sure that we have have workforce training for the 21st century. So Baylor is engaged yep. in all of that. And by the way, this was, and this is kind of a tale of what has happened in so many American cities. The brick is essentially a reformation and renaissance of the old general tire manufacturing plant that went out of business in 1986. Right. So you're taking on old industrial space that was sort of effectively decommissioned and refurbishing it and making it into something. It, so the community, something the community really benefits outside of just the university. By and this will be the back. anchor yeah. of a research park, which uh, we're very, very excited about. And I think, by the way, that's one of the things that is lost in the higher education debate that universities can be great incubators and generators of just enormous uh, effectiveness in terms of job creation. Economic but development. Also just yeah. economic. Look at Austin. <laughs> Look at the growth of Austin. Uh, I have lots of connections to Stanford. I'll be at Stanford uh, later today. Look at what Stanford University has meant to the prosperity of the world. It's just extraordinary. Go to MIT, go to Harvard, uh, go to any research university and what you're going to see is an enormous amount of benefit that flows to the economy as well as something I think is also somewhat lost in the debate and that is here in the United States maintaining our culture of liberty, maintaining our culture of freedom. What we see is people who graduate from college will be much more civically involved in their community. By the way, they will be employed. 
You look at the numbers in terms of unemployment, the unemployment problem was huge among those who did not have a college degree. So making these kinds of opportunities, Doc, that the BRIC uh, provides, I think, is very important for us. It's part of our mission at yeah. Baylor University to really have a high impact on our community, but beyond that, throughout the world. And on the economic development front, I think the interesting thing, too, is Baylor is, you know, Austin is a fairly large city with the University of Texas as a large piece of what it does, but it's not the only thing it does. Baylor, by virtue of the size of Waco, is disproportionately influential in terms of the economic development and the culture of the city. Right, and, so. and, and we want that to be as positive a way. We want radical engagement. You were talking about what, yeah. what about the future. We do have a, a new strategic vision that we've been operating right. under for uh, one year, and informed engagement in the community is a very important part of that. Yeah. And so at every turn, Baylor, just as we saw, with the outpouring for West, and that continues, Baylor will be very engaged in the community, and what the BRIC enables us to do is really provide a real hub of research, innovation, but also jobs for people in Central Texas. Excellent. Questions? Sir. Judge Starr, uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Baylor University in public education, and I noticed we were disappointed in that community that we lost our master's and doctoral program, but I understand there is uh, an effort to bring that back. I would mind if you would address that. Yeah, say a word about that, please, both the loss and the possible regaining of that program. Yes. Well, uh, all these universities, uh, Baylor is included, are having to make very, very hard choices, as you know, and it is that classic. What is, in fact, the amount of investment that we have uh, uh, that we have had to make in terms of the return and so forth? That having been said, even though some hard choices have been made in in the past, uh, and I don't criticize those choices, we believe that the School of Education, the School of Nursing, the School of Nurse of of Social Work, uh, the School of Music, we could cut all those and save a whole lot of money, a lot of money. But that's not who we are. We intend to continue to be serving the community broadly. It's part of, part of our vision. Well, what's so the issue, uh, Mr. President, what is the issue? Is the issue that the investment being made on the front end is not being met on the back end with an adequate number of graduates? Is that the issue? There, it's a whole host of issues in terms of the, the demand uh, dimension, but also, frankly, it's just driven by cost. What is, in fact, the cost of this particular program or activity, and do we have to make some, yeah. some hard choices? Some universities are closing down entire schools. So the decision was made some time ago with respect to those programs, but we, we're taking a hard look at a wide variety of academic programs, and we are in a period of growth. Uh, we want to be good stewards, but we're saying we're going to grow because the needs of this world are so profound. So we are looking at uh, yeah. then expanding the School of Education. We want to expand the School of Nursing. We have a marvelous School of Music, as I said before, which serves the church, yep. uh, and, and more generally, the culture more generally. Uh, and these are superb programs. Yep. We're winning national championships in our School of Music. Our School of Social Work does work literally around the world, including in Asia on human yep. trafficking in a very powerful, powerful way. So this is at the heart of what Baylor is, and so we're, we're going to grow those programs if we can, in fact, go out and ask Baylor Nation and then those who support Baylor's mission, come alongside us. We want those 165,000 living alumni say, I'm all in for Baylor, and okay, I'm all in for this program yeah. or that program, but I'm all in for Baylor, and I'm going to be really coming alongside and helping, because we, we, we need uh, people to time talent and treasure. The economics of running a private university, it's no different than running any business. You want to grow, you get more customers. So the question is, when you talk about growth with regard to the superintendent's question, you've now got 15,000 or so enrolled students at Baylor across- 15,500. Right, across the various programs. Freshman, incoming freshman class, about 3,200 or so. Um, certainly the demand is there. You had 38,000 applicants, I believe, last year for... And we have 1,000 folks you know, on the waiting on list. On the waiting we, list to we, get we, in. We reached out just last month and said, look, the, the class is at the size uh, that we want it to be, but obviously people then will make a different decision. So we have 1,000 people on the waiting list. So will, the will, you grow the, will you grow the enrollment, I guess is my question, because one of the ways that more resources come in the door for any business, any private business, is more customers. We are very reluctant to do that. We like the size that we are have ultimately that is a board of regents determination right. but our recommendation for the just ask buddy i think buddy's back there we just yeah. see what buddy has 
our regents will make that decision. The, uh, so let the record show. Right, yes, exactly. That you were uh, deferential but, to Buddy, as we all are, actually. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the administration will strongly recommend to the board that we not continue to grow the size of the student body. Uh, other than the graduate programs, we will continue to grow those. Right. We'll be very judicious about that. Yeah. We're growing, for example, in our health uh, administration medical administration. A huge need for that. So yep. we're growing that we're growing that program. We're growing in the sciences. There's such need. We're growing engineering. Huge need for that. Um, we are staying fairly constant in the humanities, the liberal right. arts, but we're not cutting. And that's really I think very important because what you're seeing across America in so much of higher education is a cut. Yeah, this is flat as the new up, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and we, and we and we love where we are in terms Stay of the size of, of the community. We do want to continue, by the way, to bring more and more of the upperclassmen back to campus. We think that's where the transformation truly occurs in, in people's lives. So that is. But a undergraduate huge enrollment, it sounds like. Probably we want to re remain where we remain are. Remain where we are. Very well. Other questions, gentlemen, back there. Natalia, yes, if you want to stand up, to say use your outside voice or wait for the microphone, however you want to do that. You mentioned that tenure at uh, Yale requires being a great teacher. Yes. Aside from the memory program that you uh, mentioned, uh, what other measurements are you using to determine a faculty's uh, teaching? Right, this is actually a conversation happening across public universities right. now. You know, w what does a teacher contribute to campus? How should the university calculate that contribution? So what's right. your what's your But in terms of the, of, the, of the specific uh, question, student evaluations weigh heavily in the balance. Uh, so we they are the consumers. So we yeah. want we want to know that. Uh, but we also have evaluations of more senior faculty members observing. We have an academy of uh, of, of teaching. We have a number of resources to bring our. Uh, younger professors or newer professors along in the classroom. So there's a, there's a very strong support program to ensure that if there is some issue with respect to the professor's performance in the classroom, we can address it. And then we have conversations every year with each faculty member during the tenure review process. And so if there is an issue with respect to teaching, it's flagged very early on. Let's work on it. It is a skill set. We can work on that. We have distinguished educators here. Teaching is something that can, in fact, while there may be folks with more natural gifts than others, you can work on it. You can become a, a much better teacher. So it's a very holistic process, but including student evaluations. Uh, you, you had another angle on the question? Well, my other angle was, was how you quantify the contribution oh. of a family to the questioner's point. That this is yeah. a, a, an ongoing conversation within public universities right now, is how you quantify the contribution to faculty. And we begin with teaching and mentoring. I mean, we're there to make sure that students are having a tremendous experience, a great learning experience. Yeah. So that's, that's just non-negotiable. But then we also look at research. Yeah. Uh, we, what are you doing in terms of scholarly productivity in the sciences and engineering? Right. What are you doing in terms of peer-reviewed publications and so forth? So nothing that, that that's unique. But here is something that's very important at Baylor, yeah. and that is community service. We take that very, very seriously. That includes, obviously, service to your church. But we want to know exactly what are you doing? <laughs> Uh, in the church and in the community. And so our Baylor faculty are really quite significantly engaged in the Waco community. Good. Other questions? Mr. Patterson over here. Hi, Coach Sharp. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I've got two questions, kind of. One is, has, has the teaching, the way that students today are learning, meaning all the kids today are just on their screen, yep. and it's not about interaction like this as much as on the right. screen and, and learning from a game that's on their device and has it changed yet in the classroom at Baylor and what is the little further than five years but 20 years from now is Baylor going to be spread across the globe and teaching people in other places where there's not the one-on-one -on -one interaction and the campus interaction. Well we've seen a lot of this in Texas of late. Uh, University of Texas getting involved with the edX initiative. I believe Rice has recently said they're going to join in here. This notion of online education or distance learning is pretty much baked into everybody's cake right now, right? Uh, and, and it's a very important part of the cake. Uh, we are very uh, interested in monitoring what's going on in the MOOC world, but let's just talk yeah. about Baylor. The massive online uh, courses. Yeah. Uh, 
We believe the Baylor experience is above all a residential experience where people are together in community. So if you take nothing else out, that's what Baylor is. We come together in community in a residential, heavily uh, residential uh, setting. Now, in terms of what happens in the classroom, you bet. Online is very important, including in the sciences. What we're finding is one can have virtual labs in organic chemistry. In political science, I just taught in a poli-sci class last week, and the professor delivers the lecture uh, online uh, and you, you can, uh, in fact, you're expected before you go into PolySci 2302, you will have heard the lecture. Then when you go in, it's problem solving and small groups. So there are a variety of techniques that are used, including then using online kinds of uh, uh, activity and, uh, ac across the line. So there's less of the traditional lecture, student, listener, kind of activity that we were accustomed to when we were in college. You don't think that the education that a kid uh, is receiving through one of these online experiences is in any way diminished versus the in-person experience? And that, that really is the conversation now going on. Yeah. People are excited by the opportunities that technology presents, but they're also worrying whether there's a socialization that's missing, aspect of this that's missing if you're just basically watching everything from a screen. Well, we are so committed at Baylor to the idea of the community, and it's yeah. very difficult to have a virtual community, yeah, right? right? But there can be a great transmission belt and so forth, and to have a renowned professor from MIT or whatever the university might be doing a course, right. I think that's terrific. We're very open to that as a part of an educational environment. We have a committee that is underway, or a task force, I should say, cutting across the entire university that is looking at the entire set of issues, yep. not just MOOCs or massive online courses, but looking at the entirety of these issues in terms of technology uh, and teaching. It's very important. We have a marvelous uh, dean of, in, of libraries and information sciences. She came to us from Wellesley. She's fabulous. She is helping guide this conversation yep. at Baylor. But we do not intend to compromise who we are as a residential community of people who come together. Good. Have time for another one? Ms. Richards? Uh, well, let me, let, me, uh, let me have Ms. Richards, and then we'll have uh, uh, Mr. Jones, who I'm certain is going to ask a very negative question. <laughs> uh, Ms., Ms. Richards, go ahead. So as a religious university, uh, I'm curious about how you are addressing religious tolerance. Oh, how do you address we, religious tolerance? Religious tolerance, yeah. Uh, we, we think that, and uh, this is a part of, of Baptist uh, uh, life, that protecting freedom of conscience is at the core of who we are. That you respect the conscience and the ability of someone to articulate his or her views. That you have a conversation and you just open it. Your, your views are warmly uh, welcome. Uh, in fact, when you look at the history of the First Amendment, the religion clauses, Mr. Madison was so moved by what he saw, namely Baptist pastors literally in prison in Culpeper City Jail because they were not uh, teaching pursuant to Anglican doctrine or hadn't been licensed by the Anglican Church of, uh, of Virginia. So Roger Williams in Rhode Island. This is a very important part yeah. of, of who we are and what we're all about. This gets back a little bit to this question of embracing differences and that, and that the Baylor campus, despite its traditional culture, as you said earlier, you assure us, is willing to embrace differences across the entire spectrum, including religious differences. That's we, we welcome diverse uh, views. We, at the same time, say, here's who we are, uh, and we do not uh, in any way shy away from saying, here's who we are, that we are a community of faith. The uh, wonderful motto framed at the, at the founding was pro ecclesia and pro Texana, for the church and for Texas, which we now see as a metaphor for the world. Good. And then let me have Mr. Jones appropriately be the last question today. Judge, enough of this talk about academics and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, yeah, stuff like that, buddy. <laughs> what do you see the future of the Big 12 and what is Baylor's role in it? Right, now, now let's roll up our sleeves and get at it. Um, well, we feel... Can't cancel your 10 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. What, what is the we, future we, of the Big 12? We feel very good about where we are in the Big 12. Uh, we'll be having a meeting uh, at the end of this next month of the Board of Directors, our annual meeting. We meet, obviously, we're in conversation with one another. But by virtue of all 10 members of the Big 12 having put their television rights in for Tier 1 and Tier 2, 
uh, until June 2025, for the next 13 years in effect, uh, the, co the, the conference is very solid and very stable. Uh, we have a very strong commissioner, Bob Bowlesby, who is AD and a very successful AD at, at, at Stanford. He's a great leader. Uh, he uh, is articulating the word vigilance uh, and remaining nimble. We're being very vigilant as to what's happening in terms of conference realignments. Uh, and then we'll be nimble with respect to the appropriate steps for the, for the conference uh, uh, to take. But we feel good about where we are. And one of the advantages of the 10-person conference, uh, the 10-member conference, is we all play one another. And it's a real conference. Yeah. Uh, we all play one another in football, and we play one another in double round robin uh, in basketball. And uh, the commissioner feels very strongly that that's a good thing. He thinks it's healthy. He was part of the pack. 10, he liked the Pac-10 the way it was, so he likes that. But at the same time, he understands we've got to be very aware of what is happening in terms of, because we saw what happened. When Texas A&M decided to leave, it started this entire national reaction. Right. So it's not just one university makes a move and then everyone else remains the well, same. Quite, quite, what, yeah. May I say one thing? Please, please. The ACC just put, all of the ACC members just put all television rights in this last week. That is huge because we do know that the Big Ten had its eyes uh, on several ACC so members. So that solidifies things at the ACC. And that's yeah. solid and I've talked right. recently with the presidents of Wake Forest and Duke just before that happened and they were very confident that it was going to happen and that that would stabilize the ACC. Right. That helps us because if the ACC is stable in the East, the SEC I think will remain stable and then I don't know where the Big Ten will go. As a practical matter, President Starr, I mean, leaving aside all of the things that you've talked about, none of which I doubt, you're beating the tar out of everybody else in the Big 12. Why would you leave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean if the Big Ten's trying to attract Baylor? Well, we like the Heartland Conference. I mean, as a practical matter, that. why would you go? <laughs> you know, it, it, by the way, it looks uh, pretty good, by the way, right now. I mean, I might stay if I were you. you know? One of the things that was lost in the conversation, we were lifting it up continually, is think about the student athlete. Think about the families. Are, where are the student athletes going to go? Can you imagine getting on an airplane and going to Corvallis, Oregon, wherever that is? If you're a tennis, if you're the tennis team, this is madness. I think it's absolute madness. People are just being beguiled by the almighty dollar. We've got a great conference. If we need to grow it somewhat, we'll grow it somewhat in response to what's happening elsewhere. But maintaining the regional loyalties, being right. able for the families to drive. <laughs> from Austin to Waco. I mean, this has just happened. I mean, we were in the stands yesterday for the baseball game. It is great for the Longhorns to be able to drive to Waco and for the Baylor Bears to be able to drive to Austin. It's a That's little bit farther to drive to Lubbock, but now the TCU is part of the, this is good, uh, as opposed to yeah. you know, playing someone two time zones away. Buddy, you know that despite having talked about stuff like academics, uh, the headline of this conversation will be, Big 12 solid. <laughs> that will be the takeaway from this conversation. Uh, Mr. President, thank you for making thank the you, time Evan. to be here. Thank you all for being here. Sure. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate oh, it. Was good. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Covered a lot of ground. Good. Thank you all. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas Coalition of Dental Support Organizations, Texas A&M University, and 83rd Legislative Session Sponsor MyPlates.com.